Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. Today's episode is a continuation of our last discussion where we were breaking down addictive drugs and types of medications. And we want to have a little bit of a quick overview with regards to what we chatted about on the last episode. But we're now going to step into the effects on the body as well as the ability to overcome these challenges and what we need to do to be able to take those next steps on an individual basis. All right. So as we jump in, there's three different types of addictive drugs that we discussed in the last episode. And so we'll do a quick overview of that. Joining me again today is JP Erico. Thanks for joining, JP. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So there were three different types of drugs that we talked about. The first was opioids, including things like heroin and fentanyl. So why don't we dig in with those and then we can get into the cocaine and the meth following. Sure. So uh, we talked about the fact that opioids are a substance that mimics a natural substance that we have in our body. We have natural opioids. Um, in fact, we have uh, multiple types of receptors for these, the mu, delta, and kappa receptors for opioids. And generally, they all do something very similar. There are nuances, but for our purposes, we can think of them as being generally inhibitory. The goal is to inhibit neural activity, which has the effect of affecting pain. Pain is something that causes lots of activity in the central nervous system. Our central nervous system is in part designed to recognize danger and damage and injury. And one of the ways in which we sense that is through pain. It's a very rapid response. And when pain is very, very severe, acute, severe pain, like a broken leg or something like that, our body produces large quantities of these natural opioids, endorphins and kephalins and other things that are designed to suppress that activity, not entirely, but to the point where it's tolerable. The effect that non-natural opioids have is very acutely to go beyond what your body's capability is and suppress that pain to a much greater degree so that you can deal with pain that is going to be transient and that the medical community can address more effectively than just leaving you to heal by yourself. The damage that opioids over a longer period of time do is to cause your body to stop producing the same levels of those endorphins and encephalins and other natural opioids, along with other damaging effects that they have on areas of your brain. And we're going to get into some of those with respect to inflammation and modulating how your sympathetic nervous system versus your parasympathetic function and in the long run, that damage can lead to degenerative conditions. Perfect. Yeah, great overview. And it goes to show opioids are focused on that inhibition of pain, of hacking or over kind of arching effect on blocking the effects of your normal opioids, the endorphins, the enkephalins, the ones that our body is naturally meant to utilize and support that pain reduction in those acute circumstances. And that's how it can become addictive because it's going to essentially decrease our body's ability to produce those, having an addictive response to those other medications then. Absolutely. The addictive response in the case of opioids really has to do with the removal of pain and other things that are associated. Emotional pain is also blunted as well. But then when you 
come out of it when you withdraw from having the opioids in your system, there is progressively more and more pain that you experience because you don't have the natural opioids there to help. So that's part of the addictive nature of these drugs. Perfect. Why don't we have a quick overview of cocaine as the next? Sure. So cocaine and meth, and we'll talk about that as well, are sort of the opposite. They are very, very significant activators of neural activity. In fact, they cause sort of global glutamate release. In certain areas of the brain where that happens, there are other neurotransmitters that get released as a result of the activation of that neural network. And one of those areas is in the emotional centers of the brain, in the ventral tegmental region, if you want to get technical, there's the release of dopamine. And dopamine is probably not totally accurate to call it sort of the pleasure neurotransmitter, but it's been accused of that. And so what it does is it's associated with your reward and reinforcing behavior. It actually is also involved in motivating behavior. And so a lot of the symptoms you see of a person who has is using cocaine are sort of that hyped up, over-motivated activation of their brain. I like to discuss it or, or mention that dopamine is that drive and desire to go and complete a task and motivation from that side of things. And so global activation of that system is going to create hyperactivation of this drive and desire to do stuff. And so the excitatory nature of cocaine will be on that particular system. Yeah. And that then leads to poor decision-making because you're motivated to do things really just for the sake of doing them. And you end up having people make poor decisions, not only with respect to taking more drugs or doing other things, but then it leads to other risky type behavior that they'll engage in, beating in the car, doing other things. I think I mentioned this on the last episode, but it's the Wolf of Wall Street kind of idea that that's the a very kind of basic overview of what to expect when somebody's experiencing that type of addictive behavior. And then the last is methamphetamines. I think I might have cut you off there. No, no, no. Methamphetamines are, are similar. They're just even more so because they cause a release of serotonin, uh, dopamine, uh, norepinephrine. They cause a release of all of these different neurotransmitters sort of indiscriminately. Part of the reason is that methamphetamine is in fact a neurotransmitter itself, and it binds to sort of an esoteric, when you consider uh, the various receptors in the brain, it's not one that gets a lot of attention, but it's called tracemine-associated receptor 1 or, or TAR1. And when methamphetamines bind to it, it causes a change in transporters. We talked a lot about neural function in the last episode, really getting into the nitty-gritty of the physiology of how synapse functions. But basically what we said was that when neurotransmitters are released from the presynaptic terminal, there's a process that retakes that neurotransmitter back up into the presynaptic terminal, into the postsynaptic terminal to sort of clear the synapse and also by the astrocytes. One of the things that activation of TAR1 does by with methamphetamine is it leads to sort of the reversal of that transport mechanism. So you end up having this constant reuptake or loss of reuptake or reversal of reuptake. So you end up with this very, very highly activated synapse. That's damaging on a bunch of different fronts because neurotransmitters change your ion channel activation levels. And so you have just ion flow disruption. And ultimately that can lead to 
something we're going to talk about today, which is inflammation and activation of microglial cells and ultimately actually physical damage to the brain. Yeah. And we'll get into the full mechanism there, but I'm going to clearly say that this hyperactivation is going to lead to excessive levels of ATP release. And that is a signal to the microglia and other immune cells in and around the central nervous system that will then go and eat away at these areas that it feels are dysfunctional. And so it's trying to break down or, or limit the dysfunction, but in fact, it's kind of global dysfunction that is occurring due to some external activation through. Yeah, much the same way we talked about with opioids, that the exogenous opioids that people take leads to a reduction in the expression of natural opioids, endorphins and encephalins, and that then leads to withdrawal symptoms. In a very similar way, cocaine and methamphetamine, because they're leading to a higher level of dopamine release and, and presence in the synapse, the brain has ways, the body has ways of trying to limit the damage that's being done. And that leads to sort of reducing the desire or the amount of dopamine that's being released. One of the ways that it does that is MAO, which is monoamine oxidase, which is a chemical that your brain produces for the purposes of breaking down things like dopamine and norepinephrine, et cetera. So when you have high levels of monoamine oxidase, you end up losing the amount of neurotransmitter you have in the brain and available. That's why one of the very first classes of antidepressants were MAOIs or monoamine oxidase inhibitors. The idea was to block the breakdown of serotonin and other monoamines. And the purpose of that was ultimately to enhance the ability of serotonin or norepinephrine to work as they're supposed to. What happens with methamphetamines is it actually inhibits MAO normal function. And so it's just one more way in which you get this excess level of neurotransmitter in the synapse. So it's got lots of different effects and all of which seem to disrupt neurotransmitter balance. So let's get into some of the particular effects of these drugs and how they create changes and activation within our autonomic nervous system and inflammatory effects that they then will create as well. Sure. Well, let's start with cocaine and methamphetamines because we were just talking about them. And basically, when you see this release of norepinephrine, especially, which is the primary neurotransmitter of the sympathetic nervous system, cocaine has the ability to drive that level of sympathetic activation to a higher level, which is part of why you see that hyped up behavior. I mean, we talk about some of it in the central nervous system, but in the autonomic nervous system, the same thing is happening. So you have this hyped up, almost like you're about to run a race or you're about to be in a car race or something like that, where you've got this high level of adrenaline flowing through your body. And as we've discussed, short periods of time where you have that heightened level of alertness and energy is actually a positive. That's why we enjoy playing sports. That's why we enjoy doing uh, things that are challenging. But at the same time, extended periods of time where that's being artificially driven is damaging. And so extended periods of time of sympathetic activation, as we know, leads to problems like inflammation and ultimately cognitive problems. So that's what's going on with cocaine, even more so with meth, 
again, I don't want to suggest that cocaine is somehow the, the lesser of two evils. They're both evil, but cocaine has a more narrow and focused effect, whereas meth is just, is really devastating. I like to think of it with regards to these stimulants activating the sympathetic system as literally, we'll go back to that car analogy, where we're just pushing the accelerator all the time. And the effect of that is that there's no slowdown. The brakes can't shut it down. The vagus nerve or the parasympathetic activation is not capable of slowing down that sympathetic drive. And a car is essentially out of control, veering off wherever it could possibly be. Very dangerous experience for those who've ever experienced having brakes that don't work. So that's what essentially we're experiencing, especially in the stimulant experience with cocaine and methamphetamine. Yeah, I take your analogy one step further and I say it's actually like stomping on the gas while you've got the emergency brake on. You know, the emergency brake is the MAOIs and the other things that the uptake mechanisms, et cetera. But stomping on the gas hard enough, your car's going to go, but you're just grinding away at those brakes to the point where the brakes will literally fail. Even when you're driving normally, your brakes just won't function properly anymore. That analogy is pretty good. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's look at the opposite here now with opioids and having their inhibitory effect. What's the way that it's going to create sympathetic activation? You know, in general, with opioids, it's the removal of the opioid in the environment where the enkephalins and the endorphins have been not depleted, but they've been downregulated is the term that scientists use. It, it downregulates the production and, and the release of endorphins and enkephalins. And when you do that, then when you withdraw away from using the opioids, you have this activation of the sympathetic nervous system simply because the natural inhibition is no longer there. And that, as we talked about, I think last time, that's actually made worse by mm-hmm. naloxone. Naloxone is, is one of those chemicals that's used as a way to sort of detox a person, but it's blocking the opioid receptor entirely. And as a result, even your natural opioids, endorphins and enkephalins can be blocked. Yeah. And I would liken that to wearing away of the brakes over time and you're not able to turn on that parasympathetic activation. And it's not that you're pulling or, or you're pushing the accelerator all the time. Rather, you, the brakes just are not working anymore. And so anytime there is that pain activation, it's, you just can't slow down anymore. Absolutely. And we've always talked about the parallel between the sympathetic nervous system activation over a longer period of time leading to inflammation. And that's really, I think those two things go hand in hand. I think of them as two sides of the same coin. So when you've got cocaine and meth driving activation of the sympathetic nervous system for extended periods of time while people are high and then they're drug seeking because they've got the withdrawal symptoms and they're looking for that next buzz, if you will. And same thing with opioids. During the period of time that the opioid's being used, you have this reduction in sympathetic activation, but it's really also a reduction in all activation. So it's not like, oh, well, you've reduced the sympathetic nervous system while you're on the opioid, therefore the parasympathetic is functioning normally. No, everything is suppressed. So you really don't have any real control over the system at that point. And then obviously when you get the withdrawal, you're not on the opioid, you have this rush of pain and other things that that will drive the sympathetic nervous system. And that drives inflammation. So, you know, when you look at a patient talking about cocaine and meth again, look at a patient's body and brain after 
use of cocaine or a history of cocaine use or meth, you see a much higher activation of microglial cells. There's been oxidative stress that's taken place. There's actually a loss of brain matter as a result of neurons actually being depleted from the system. And it's really, it's a cascade that reminds me personally of what's going on in degenerative disorders like Alzheimer's or CTE, concussion atrophy of the brain. It's a very damaging thing for the brain itself. In the specific case of cocaine, where it's such a big push of glutamate into the system, that actually ends up causing something called excitotoxicity. Mm-hmm. Um, excitotoxicity, if we just maybe take a moment to talk about that. Mm-hmm. When your synapses are flooded with glutamate, which is the primary excitatory neurotransmitter of the brain, what happens is your expression of certain neurotransmitter receptors, AMPA and NMDA receptors, is made larger. Mm-hmm. And there's a breakdown in the cell's ability to control ion flow into it. And you end up with reactive oxygen species that get created. And that actually inside the cell causes damage. And when there's enough damage that's occurred, the cell has ways of actually observing inside itself and saying, wait a minute, there's lots of damage that's taking place here. I'm no longer really a healthy cell. And if I'm not a healthy cell, I'm better off not being here. And the cell will literally commit suicide. It will literally say, okay, I'm going to sacrifice myself for the betterment of the brain itself and undergo a process called apoptosis. And so you end up with these cells becoming apoptotic and destroying themselves. Worse yet, if they don't, but the cell actually can't function properly and ultimately it dies, it becomes necrotic. And it's worth spending just a moment talking about the difference between a cell that has died because it's, it's undergone that process of apoptosis where it sort of self-sacrificed and killed itself off versus a cell that dies sort of unnaturally uh, where it didn't have the time to do that. Those two things are different with respect to how your immune, cell, immune cells are tasked with clearing that out, mm-hmm. view them. In the case of apoptosis, yes, you've lost a cell. It's a bad thing. But the ability of the clearance mechanisms, which involve microglial cells, the innate immune cells of the brain, when they clear that cell out, they don't have to become robustly inflammatory to do that. They can remain sort of quiescent. In the case of a necrotic cell, where the cell has died and didn't do it by its own hand, it just died, that necrotic cell that's activating to that microglial cell. When the microglial cell comes along to clear it out, it says, well, wait a minute. This guy didn't die for the betterment of the brain. This guy died because it got killed off. And that means I got to be on guard. And so it will become pro-inflammatory. These are the types of things that are happening inside the brain of a person who is on cocaine, on meth, has such a heightened level of activation, whether it be glutamate or just a cascade of all neurotransmitters being released, it just disrupts the immune system and you end up with this really very robustly inflammatory environment, which leads to more pain, which leads to less rewarding experience, leads to a disruption in your cognitive function, 
leads to lots of other things. I mean, degenerative disorders come into play. Now, I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit, but cocaine has really a heightened risk of Parkinson's disease. I would say to anybody who's even considering it or using these drugs, I would say, listen, the consequences aren't just short term. They're very long term. In the case of methamphetamines, the consequences of that activation of the microglial cells, that can go on for months or even years after you've decided, okay, I'm not doing this anymore and you've managed to quit. The microglial damage can, can continue on for a long time. If I could analogize for a moment there, it sounds very much like when a neuron essentially goes into that apoptotic state where it says, okay, I'm not functioning any further. I cannot do this anymore. That's almost like somebody passing peacefully at home. It's not like there's a traumatic incident or some sort of crime that was committed. Somebody's passed in their sleep and or they sent a signal out to the world that, okay, I'm going peacefully, where when the necrotic activation and cell death occurs, it's almost like we're turning on the crime scene investigators and saying, hey, something major is happening here. This is a criminal occurrence, some sort of traumatic incident that caused the death of this cell. And so we need to alert all of the emergency services to be on guard to figure out what actually caused this death and ensure that this doesn't continue to happen. We want it to stop before it becomes a serial killer type of idea, right? I think that's a good analogy. In the case of drug use that leads to even a cell becoming apoptotic, I think you're still talking about premature death. It's not a death that's like the person made it to 95 years old, had a wonderful life, is surrounded by family that's going to fill in and replace that person's role in the family. It's really like a premature death. It may not be criminal, but it's still a premature death that everybody's shocked by, and it's not good for the system. Almost like an occurrence of an overdose or something along those lines. Yeah, it's sort of ironic, but that, yeah, the brain is mimicking what could ultimately happen to the person. So... It's quite interesting when that happens, right? Yeah, it's very unfortunate. So let's get into some of the neurotoxicity a little bit that occurs with meth use and how microgliosis will result from that. Yeah, so methamphetamines do cause microgliosis in a pretty robust manner. And as we talked about, even after a long period of abstinence after use, it, it still can disrupt how the microglial cells are functioning. And when microglial cells aren't functioning properly, we see it in many conditions where microglial cells are not functioning properly. For example, in CTE, you see erratic behavior, you see violent outbursts, you see an inability to control emotions. These things are all a function of the neuropathology that goes along with disrupted neurotransmitter expression, disrupted cytokine expression that occurs when you have your microglial cells in this activated state, you actually end up seeing a loss of gray matter, a loss of white matter, the white matter tracks that sort of allow different areas of the brain to communicate with one another, to form coherent thoughts and to be creative and to all these things. You lose that when you've literally caused the immune cells in your brain to break the brain down. We talked about in previous episodes how the immune system, the innate immune cells of the brain, the microglial cells are actually the architects of building the brain. Mm -hmm. We have also talked about in the circumstances of degenerative conditions, how those microglial cells, when they become dysfunctional, 
when they're not functioning according to plan, they can begin to break down the brain in much the same way, using the same tools that they use to build the brain. They use them now to break the brain down. And unfortunately, meth use, when you drive those microglial cells into that activated state, you end up having that destruction of the brain, hypertrophy, basically a, a breakdown or atrophy of areas of the brain that are critical for normal function. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we get into the idea of control of impulse control centers and the effects of some of these drugs on those areas? Yeah, we touched on it a little bit last time, but I think it's really worth revisiting maybe in a little more depth. When you're looking at your future, human beings undergo, even subconsciously, what's sort of called sort of a, applying a discount rate to the value. It's, mm-hmm. it's applying a mathematical modeling. And even for people who don't do math very well, they're still doing it. What they're doing is they're saying, what's the probability of a future reward occurring if I take this course of action? If I behave in this way, some good things will happen. We all teach our kids do well in school. Well, why are we telling them to do well in school? We're saying this effort that may not be enjoyable For some people it is, but for other people it may not be as enjoyable, but it will give you a reward in the future that's worth it. Yeah. And so we train our kids, even from birth, to do things like to exercise, to abstain from eating too much sugar, to doing well in school, all because we're teaching them that in the future there's something that's positive that's going to happen to them and that they can today view that future positive reward with some sort of value. I give value to that today. And it's worth more to me, that future value that I'm going to get, the value that it is today is more valuable to me than the immediate reward of sitting down and just watching cartoons and eating sugary cereal. You know, we hope that that's what they get. It doesn't always work, but we're trying to teach them that. What happens in opioid abuse and cocaine abuse and methamphetamine abuse is that you end up seeing a change in how that calculation is done in the brain. Part of it is you know, dopamine disruption and the fact that the brain is actually withdrawing its production of dopamine once you get off the drugs because you've, you've sort of abused it. And can go even further in meth use to actually sort of a psychosis. You actually have a break from reality that occurs, especially if in long-term use, you've broken down the white matter tracks as much as it is. And so what you end up with is this disrupted ability to see the value of the future. That's really a terrible thing to lose because it really is your motivation for doing a lot of really important good things that you do in your life is for a future reward. If all we did was go around through our lives looking for immediate gratification and immediate rewards, we won't get very far. Unfortunately, it leads you into a lot of really bad and dangerous circumstances. And, and that unfortunately is where you see a lot of meth addicts end up is in circumstances where there is no future. This reminds me of, there's a very famous study, I forget where it was completed, but it was that delayed gratification study that children that were able to delay gratification, essentially they were given a marshmallow in front of them and said, if I'm gonna leave the room, whoever kind of put the marshmallow there, they said they'll leave the room And if you don't eat that one marshmallow, by the time I come back, I'll give you a second. And they waited something along five to 10 minutes. And the kids that were able to wait and leave the marshmallow and not eat it, 
immediately, they didn't seek immediate gratification. The ones that waited and delayed their gratification and were able to get two, actually down the road many years later, were able to do, were far more successful in their overall lives, according to their study. Very interesting kind of study. And there's a couple things in there that I kind of question myself. But what I'm very interested in is this idea that there is this pathway where we can future pace, where we can put this gratification or the ability to delay it out into the future, where it's almost like these drugs will cut off that ability to see what the future even holds and say that we need that gratification now. We want that dopamine activation now and not able to delay it at all. Yeah, you're talking about the Stanford marshmallow test. That's right, yes. I often talk about that with my own children, the importance of being able to recognize, sort of game theory it out, figure out, okay, okay, two marshmallows in 15 minutes, that's much better than one marshmallow right now, I'll wait. There's lots of pieces of it, as you said, that, that are interesting about you know, trust and authority, recognition that, that I can have faith in what that person's telling me that go into it. But the consequences of that, that they tracked over 30 years were remarkable. I mean, higher salaries, better colleges, better relationships, better health. All of those things seem to tie back to that ability at age five or six years old to be able to delay gratification. You know, you and I talked, I think in an episode about that, when we talked about how the brain develops and the importance of proper autonomic nervous system function and innate immune system function to build the brain properly and to be able to make the connections and that having that ability to delay gratification at age five or six was really a consequence of that positive environment that led to less inflammation, et cetera. So it wasn't necessarily that ability to delay gratification was the cause of the future benefit, although it was a sign that it would be the case. Yeah. So anyway, it's a- positive, but certainly correlated to future success. Yeah. And the problem is that with drug abuse, that ability is lost, but it's, I think, probably just, again, a symptom of what's happening in terms of the actual degeneration and breakdown of proper brain function and cognitive ability, because cognitive ability is clearly a consequence of uh, drug abuse, both on the opioid side as well as on the, the cocaine and meth side. Those psychotic symptoms that occur in meth really mimic what happens in schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this when we talked about neurodevelopmental problems associated with the immune system. But what's happening is those activated microglial cells are actively pruning the network. They're actually cutting down the network excessively. They're mm-hmm. supposed to do it in a way that's sensory and activity dependent so that you sort of optimize brain function. You're making the brain more efficient. But at some point, continuing to break the brain down and breaking those synapses, not in that way, but just because it's toxic, will obviously break down the ability of of the brain to function properly. And so if you do that, you end up with an inability to think clearly, an inability to recognize and properly draw sensory information in. So you end up with your brain creating hallucinations and the like. And so really, meth can lead to schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Uh, all drug use can lead to, with the activation of the microglial cells uh, into that pro-inflammatory state, to cognitive deficits where the brain isn't able to make proper memories, learn new tasks, gravely impairs the brain. And so, again, it's critically important to minimize 
things that we take in, whether they be illegal or otherwise, that can cause that heightened level of inflammation. And unfortunately, drugs like these are just really the worst. I think we've covered a lot of the damaging effects, both acute and long-term, with regards to these particular drug, addictive drugs and their use over time. I want to shift gears and start to focus on what are the things that we can do? Where has vagus nerve stimulation actually come in as a potential therapeutic tool to help against and battle these addictive disorders? Yeah, so we've discussed a couple of different on prior podcasts where we've talked about how activation of the sympathetic nervous system leads to a heightened level of innate immune system activity. So when you're in that sympathetic overdrive, for a variety of reasons, we've talked about how Western society drives us into that heightened level of sympathetic overdrive. It's nothing compared to what these kind of drugs can do. I mean, meth and, and coke can just drive people into that heightened level of sympathetic overdrive in ways that really are orders of magnitude more dangerous. But what happens is when you have that heightened level of immune activity, we need something to balance that. We need that heightened level of parasympathetic activation to balance it out and to, to suppress that sympathetic activation. And stimulating the vagus nerve, which is really the principal arm of that parasympathetic, is a, a good way of doing it. Now, we've talked about exercise. We've talked about proper diet, maintaining the microbiome in the gut properly um, as, as good natural ways to do it, along with things like chanting and humming and gargling and other things that activate the nerve because it's running through your neck yeah. in the vicinity of the carotid artery and in your esophagus and trachea. And you, you can activate it manually or physically or, or mechanically as a result of some of the things that we've just talked about, chanting and humming and things like that. There are ways to electrically stimulate it, which is a very direct way of stimulating the vagus nerve. You can access it right there on the neck. You can access it at the ear through the tragus nerve. You can access it internally if you're willing to undergo a surgery um, with implants. But in general, the idea of electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve is to activate the parasympathetic. And it has the ability in doing so to activate a, a very important immune reflex in the body, which has been called the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. And that we've talked about it on prior episodes, but just to very briefly cover it for those who haven't heard those episodes, I certainly encourage them to do that. But very briefly, what happens is when you stimulate the vagus nerve, it activates a cascade of different connections that go both up into the brainstem and down through the other side of the vagus or sympathetic nerve chain. And ultimately, it activates in the spleen the release of neurotransmitters that will suppress or downregulate the level of vigilance and activation or pro-inflammatory state of your immune cells. And so the practical upshot is that if you stimulate the vagus nerve, either through exercise or physical things that you're doing, or electrically with a, a device, you can have an anti-inflammatory effect on the body and upregulate the parasympathetic activity. And there have been several studies that have been done in drug use, mm -hmm. um, in abusers of drugs who are trying to withdraw, that demonstrate that it can be very, very beneficial. In fact, there's a couple of products, uh, mostly based on the ear, that have already gotten approvals that are, are in the United States at least, approved as bridge devices. In fact, I think one of them is actually called the bridge device to bridge people 
through opioid withdrawal, and I think ultimately even a longer-term use, especially in patients with a meth addiction. I think that the longer they use it, the more valuable it will be for them because we're really trying at that point not just stop the destruction, but maybe even reconstruct areas of the brain that have been damaged. So really exciting opportunities to treat patients. You know, I can just cite again the the bridge device. There's a there's also a device called the I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it by Diansis, which is a very similar device. It attaches to the ear. They've got some studies out there, some studies uh, that are retrospective as well as prospective studies that show really a pretty remarkable drop in the mm-hmm. uh, the withdrawal symptoms that they're experiencing and improvements that in the 60, 70, 80% range, even up into the high 90% range over just a period of a week while they're going through withdrawal. Unfortunately, when you talk about opioid addiction, there's just an incredibly low rate of success making it through that, even just that first week of opioid withdrawal because the symptoms are so severe and really, honestly, the damage has been done. And so how do you get these patients to stick with it is really a function of managing their symptoms. Yeah. Um, and so and managing their, the, it's not just physical symptoms, it's also emotional panic and anxiety, et cetera, that comes with it. And so, you know, I realized it was a relatively small study, but they were approaching almost 90% of the patients making it through that first week and getting to the point where they could begin taking medications to assist them in their treatment. Again, those products are, I think at least one of them, if not both, are approved in the United States for helping with opioid withdrawal. I think they're probably also going to be very effective in other drugs as well. There's also a study by Bremner and his colleagues out of Georgia. I think it was uh, Georgia Tech and Emory working together. They did a, a smaller study, but it was randomized. They seem to show very positive results in symptoms. Again, one of the most important symptoms, not only the pain and, and other symptoms of withdrawal, but but the anxiety, that fear, that panic that, that strikes when the person starts to feel these symptoms and experiences the symptoms for an extended period of time and they don't seem to break. Again, very positive. That was with a stimulator at the neck, so able to stimulate through the skin to the, the main trunk of the, of the cervical branch of the vagus uh, versus the ear, but both approaches seem to have similar effects. And so we're hopeful that these devices get used more frequently to help these people. Because right now, especially in opioid treatment facilities, the biggest challenge is keeping them there for that first week so they can get through those withdrawal symptoms and and giving them emotional support and giving them other forms of physical support are really, really helpful. But man, if you could just simply lower the withdrawal symptoms and help them emotionally through it with the activation of the parasympathetic, I think it'll go a long way in, in making it a more successful treatment. Yeah, decreasing that risk of relapse and getting back into that state where they're able to actually bridge and, and get to that other side after a week. I don't see any negatives to this, right? We see that there are tools, there are physiological pathways by which this is going to modulate the activity of the immune system within the brain in a very positive way. And so why not utilize the best possible tools, the best possible evidence to help people get to the other side and and get away from the use of these uh, abuse drugs? And, you know, one of the things that even beyond 
just that first week. We've been spending a lot of time talking about the withdrawal symptoms, but you know, the damage that's been done, and we talked especially about meth, but but really it's true of cocaine and, and opioids as well. There's been damage, especially after prolonged use, there's been damage to the cognitive abilities mm-hmm. that the person had. You, you, you can literally lose IQ points as a result of this. And so one of the goals is to optimize that neuroregenerative potential that we all have to sort of build back that central nervous system capability for learning, for memory, executive function, et cetera. I believe based on the work that's been shown in other indications where vagus nerve stimulation has been approved, for example, in depression, Mm -hmm. one of the things we've talked about when we talked about depression is that use of vagus nerve stimulation appears to restore or build back the cognitive loss or cognitive dysfunction that does go along with depression. It's also been seen in epilepsy patients where as a consequence of epilepsy or as a comorbidity of epilepsy, there appears to be some level of cognitive dysfunction. Vagus nerve stimulation appears to be able to restore certain aspects of intellectual capability, especially in the verbal area. And verbal intelligence is really important because it seems to be associated with things like long-term deferral of gratification and and that value of future reward. So I think that vagus nerve stimulation has the potential to, and it hasn't been proven yet in this indication, but I think that ultimately one of the benefits that should be studied and ultimately may show itself to be the case is that vagus nerve stimulation can not only step a person through the withdrawal phase of getting off uh, addictive drugs, but can actually help restore some of the damage that's been done cognitively, emotionally, and ultimately spiritually to get these people back into a life that they had before they, they made the mistake of getting on those, those drugs. No better place to end with some positive notes and some hope. So I'm going to call it a wonderful episode for today. Thank you so much for joining and sharing all that knowledge. I always love hearing you. from you. And for anybody who is listening and wants to learn a little bit more, You can reach out to us through any of the contact details that are present in the show notes. We can help direct if there is anybody that is in need of support in these particular areas. And when it comes to sharing this information, please get this information out to anybody who you think could utilize it. Our goal here with getting these podcast episodes out is to inspire hope and positive enlightenment into the opportunities for healing and to overcome these challenges. At the end of the day, we all just want to be healthier, happier people. And these tools may actually help provide some direction and how to make that happen. So please share this information with anybody that needs to hear it. And we look forward to seeing you or hearing you on the next one.